0: all
1: right and we're live so this is another week of adventures in devops where uh, we just have the panelists so as a quick note before we get started if you would like to be a guest on the show or know anybody who might possibly want to be a guest on the show throw them our way I think you can go, where can you go? You can go to like devchat.tv, sign up, something like that. Go, um, if you Google Adventures and DevOps or devchat.tv, hopefully it brings you to some kind
2: of it, uh, Okay, here, here's the link. It's com slash adventures and DevOps. And if you can't remember that, then that means you have my memory. How about we just put, put it, it in the show notes? Definitely, let's put that in the show <laughs> notes.
1: <laughs> It'll be in the show notes, you guys. All right, so this week I have with me Jonathan Hall. Hi. And Will Button. Hello, everyone and I'm Jillian Rowe, and we are gonna be talking about when you should use Kubernetes, and I have the answer always.
3: Yes, show's over, see you next time. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. All right,
1: that that was short. you (laughs) you
0: You remember that time where you ran into that works on my machine kind of problem, and you get in and you're thinking, okay, I checked the libraries, I checked everything else, and then it turns out that there's something really weird about the production data that's just different from your test data. Or maybe you're thinking, man, it'd be nice if I had a database that was as large as the production database so that I could actually see what the performance characteristics are. But you can't copy the production data because you don't want to have all the customer information on your computer. Plus, you may be running into regulatory things like financial or medical. So what do you do? Well, you try out Tonic.ai. Tonic.ai will look at your data set will do the analysis and will build you a customized data set for your application so that you can test it and run it on CI and on your development machine without exposing any of the actual data from production. It's awesome, it's easy to use, and it's definitely worth checking out. So go check them out at tonic.ai.
3: Yeah, so both of y'all, before we started recording here, seem to be pretty pro-Kubernetes, and. I'm not anti Kubernetes, but I do think that there's a lot of scenarios where if you have a, a runtime environment issue and you use Kubernetes, now you have two issues. Sort of like a twist like on the old thoughts. regex joke. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and so here's where my thought process comes in on that. I, I do like Kubernetes. I think it's, it's, it, you know, it's obviously cool and. That's the whole reason I do this line of careers, because I like playing with cool stuff. But from a business perspective, you got to balance the cool with what's the right thing for the business. And so I think one of the first criteria I throw out for Kubernetes, yay or nay, is what does your existing team look like? Do you have individuals on your team that have experience with with Linux administration and sysadmin skills and networking and things like that. Cause I, I work with quite a few different teams who don't have those skills. And I think for them to add learning Kubernetes in addition to learning sysadmin and all the things that are required to support Kubernetes puts them in a, a big bucket of technical debt that may not be helping their business move forward. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I actually wrote an article, I'll put a link in the show notes too, a year ago or more, and I talked about some of the pros and cons of Kubernetes, specifically for small teams. But the re- the biggest, I think the biggest reason not to use Kubernetes is the steep learning curve. If you're not already familiar with it and you can't dedicate some time to it, it's probably not a good tool for a small team because it, it, it's complicated. There's a lot, it, it's an amazing tool, but it's not an easy True. tool. True. So. Yeah you you really have to dedicate some resources human resources to it if that's something you're thinking about doing
3: especially with when you look at the alternatives and i think that's important to highlight is okay if we're not going to use kubernetes what are we going to use and i think there's some options like i love heroku for small teams that are early stage startups that are just trying to get something out to test the the customer market fit And then in AWS, I've used Fargate a lot, which I think Fargate, I don't know how Fargate works under the hood, but it really, really feels like it's a managed Kubernetes for you platform, even though AWS also has EKS, which is a managed Kubernetes platform for you. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with what uh, you guys are saying. I mean, for the most part, if you don't have a team that can take on that kind of overhead, because Kubernetes is quite a bit of overhead, and you know you don't have people who know like Docker and sysadmin and even some dealing with networking and this kind of thing, it's probably not a good bet to go with Kubernetes. You're going to blow it up at some point, and then just end up switching to something simpler. If you want something simpler and you're on AWS, I really like AWS Lightsail. I tend to get a lot of my clients on there who aren't, um, you know, necessarily super technical people they can pretty much go on there. It's kind of a simplified interface. It does have like a little bit of load balancing um, and auto-scaling behind the scenes. Not as much as you get with Kubernetes, but plenty, I think, to get you started. Especially if you're in kind of early stages, you know, you're just putting out a product. It doesn't necessarily need to have all the bells and whistles. And maybe you don't have like a, a huge budget for it. Just go with something, go with something simpler.
3: And is it, are you referring to EKS?
1: No, AWS LightSail is like, well,
3: Oh, Lightsail! I think
1: Lightsail behind the hood, yeah, Lightsail. I think behind the hood, it's using EC2. It might be using some Fargate now because they did introduce containers. I think it. I think it's all EC2. It just has a simplified web interface on top of it to make it really easy to deploy web applications. So instead of going through the EC2, uh, you know, like the AWS console for EC2 and having to press a whole bunch of buttons, the Lightsail uh, web interface just streams, streamlines all that for you. I don't know if it's doing like anything else behind the scenes. I don't I don't think it is. I think it's just using EC2 instances. It will set up a load balancer for you. And it can optionally set up SSL and that kind of thing for you too. I'm pretty I sure. I haven't used it in a bit and they have added some things, but that's, that's what it used to be.
2: Gotcha. I think another alternative that's often overlooked these days, and it shouldn't be, is just running a single VM, especially if you're early stage and you're just trying to build a prototype or something. You probably don't need all this orchestration. Just just you know, there's no shame in FTPing your service to a VM if that works for you.
3: Yeah, for sure. Like whenever your like if your target market or your expected customers is in the a few thousand, it's it's gonna be just fine. Just run an EC two. And then as you learn more, you can always,
2: you know, grow with that. And you know, maybe you know that yeah, maybe you know that you do want some high availability and rolling rolling upgrades and and <laughs> failover or whatever. Maybe you know you will want that. But until you need it, why, why do you need to invest the time in that? You know, there are times, there are times when it's appropriate to invest the effort in doing that from the beginning, but there are more, more times probably when it's not worth investing that effort until you've reached a critical mass of customers, uh, especially if it's a, a, a very experimental project and you don't know if you're going to be selling. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be in business in six months? If you don't know the answer to that, why are you wasting time building Kubernetes or? or whatever, or even Heroku. Just get your service on a, on a VM, let your customers play with it, and see if they like it before you invest all that effort. Yeah, agree. Yeah,
1: get stuff out. Build demos.
2: Fail fast. Exactly. <laughs> if you want to fail fast, use Kubernetes for everything.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, then you'll fail super fast, guys.
2: <laughs> yeah, I love they're... Kubernetes, but I, but I agree with, both, I mean, with, with what you guys are saying. It's not the right tool for every situation. It's not. Yeah. I think one place where...
3: It is a really good fit, even if you don't have the technical resources in-houses. If you have your own data center or if you have hardware sitting in a data center and you're trying to maximize the life and capabilities of that hardware, I think Kubernetes is a good way to do that without going down the path of, of provisioning individual VMs across hardware or, or doing something like VMware or Hyper V or one of those tools.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it would take away some of the complexity of like managing your own data center with individual individual servers and all that.
3: Yeah. Although it seems like if you have your own hardware in a data center, you probably have in house IT skills or
2: IT resources. Or you need to you means. at least need to develop them, right? Maybe you don't have them yeah. yet, but you need to develop yeah. them. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, you never know. It used to be a lot more common to be like, "I'm going to buy my data center and worry about everything else afterwards." And it did always kind of seem to me that that does not seem to be the correct order of operations over here, guys. But you know, what do I know?
3: Yeah, it's actually been several. I bet it's been more than five years since I've actually set foot in a physical data center. Oh, it's been longer than that for me. It happened
1: in like seven. I, I used to I go to seven.
3: I used to have a couple of clients that were in a data center here in Phoenix. And the one data center that center they were in, all of the guards were ex special forces or or military. So you would walk in, there were these guys with with guns, and you know, obviously spent twenty two, twenty three hours a day working out at the gym, and then had their one hour shift at the data center. So it was pretty intimidating when you went in.
1: Last time I went in a data center, I was I was pregnant with my youngest, and I was like too big to like get in the rats. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to get somebody else sent down there, to like. Cause I was supposed to put something in in like one of the like one of the racks that was way down low, and I was like, "Oh, I'm not doing this." And that was my last. That was my last time in a data center. That, <laughs> I was just like, "No more." No more,
2: you guys. No more. So one thing I think that's important to bring up when we're talking about reasons not to use Kubernetes, I mean, and we kind of talked about this a little bit, but it's I think it's worth digging into, you know, the learning curve. But one of the things that I think is easy to overlook, especially if you're if you're maybe you started using Kubernetes and you're you're excited by how shiny and exciting it is, but you haven't been using it very long, it's really easy to overlook how complex it is to debug things in Kubernetes. Now there are there are tools maybe using rancher or whatever that can help with that but if you're just using straight kubernetes you can end up with a failure maybe a, a a pod isn't starting and it's not at all clear why and you you might have to look in three or four different places for those logs to to find the actual cause of that problem and it's It's extremely frustrating when you're new to Kubernetes trying to find this and you're looking at the logs and there's nothing there because you don't know which log to look in. And you're looking at the pod logs and it just says the pod quit or whatever. And uh, it can be extremely challenging to to learn the right places to look to debug your failures. So it's not a simple, it's not like debugging a Linux box where you just look at var syslog and it'll tell you something. And you know maybe they'll point you to some other log somewhere else, but uh, Kubernetes often doesn't even do that much. You just you're just kind of left maybe asking on Stack Overflow or or on a Slack channel, where do I look for this thing? And maybe somebody points you in the right direction, but it can be really frustrating and it's it's a challenge to to debug Kubernetes when it's not working correctly. Yeah, for sure.
3: And if you do, if you are using something like a centralized logging service, you know you'll have all of your logs there, but then still trying to filter out okay, which of these logs that I'm looking at here are relevant to my issue and which logs are related to something else going on in Kubernetes that has nothing to do with why I'm troubleshooting this problem.
2: And, it, and if you're the one setting up that centralized logging, you have to make sure you set it up for every service that needs logging. And I failed on that before. You know, I I've, I've thought all my logs are going to the right place. Why is nothing showing up? And realized later Oh, that one thing, I don't even remember what it was, but that one thing isn't sending logs to the central service.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's another big thing with Kubernetes is, you know, it's one of these platforms that's so highly configurable. And it's like, okay, guys, that's great. But what I really want, like, I kind of just want like a standard sort of set of best practices that I can put on top of Kubernetes that's really going to be able to easily get me started. Um, for a little while, Bitnami and uh, maybe VMware, you know, whatever whatever they were, they had um, like a nice like Kubernetes production runtime and that had Elasticsearch, Kibana, maybe one of the Fluentd aggregators and the external, you know, the external DNS helm chart and metric server auto scaling. Yeah, there's just, I mean, like I'm naming them all off here and there's just a ton of things that you need to even make your Kubernetes system usable. One thing that really surprised me is when I first started using EKS, which is the AWS managed uh, Kubernetes, is that EKS has... E, which is elastic in the name, auto scaling is not set up by default. You guys, <laughs> like, that <laughs> got me so bad the first time that I used it, and I was like, "Oh no, why are all of my services crashing?" And then I realized I only had you know however many nodes, and it wasn't scaling up new nodes. And then I had to, I don't, I don't know, like that took me a couple of days to figure out why. First of all, why isn't just auto scaling enabled by default? Because it says. The service is called Elastic, and isn't that the whole point of Kubernetes? And then it was like, well, no, Kubernetes is so highly configurable that you have to press the button for absolutely everything. So now it's not <laughs> so bad. I've got like my Terraform modules and things that have kind of my base uh, Kubernetes and the way that I want it set up and the way that I'm comfortable with using it. But then at the same time, it is so highly configurable that somebody else might look at that and be like, oh, no, this isn't the way that I want it set up at all. I want it set up, you know, this other way which makes me wonder how easy it is to standardize, you know, across environments, across teams, this and that, just how much complaining there will be in the meantime. If it's me, it will be a lot. <laughs> what do you guys do for that kind of first layer? Okay, I'm deploying a Kubernetes cluster. What else gets deployed with that?
2: What With the cluster?
1: Yeah, so you, you spin up your Kubernetes cluster. What's next? The auto-scaling metric server, the external DNS Helm chart. What do you guys put on there? I want to know and then
3: I'm going to go steal it. <laughs> For me, a lot of my experience with Kubernetes has been in physical data centers. So there's, there's not really any auto scaling to be had. You just provision which, which nodes are going to be available and that's what you get. But I think some of the key things that you have to have in there are the, the metric server so that you can see what's going on performance wise in there and then Prometheus with Grafana for monitoring those things, or a lot of the instances I've been involved with are already using Elasticsearch. So I'll just roll the Elk stack out as part of the Kubernetes infrastructure and use Logstash for sending logs over to Elasticsearch and then Kibana for building the dashboards instead of Grafana. And DNS, yeah, DNS is a pain because it has its own internal DNS, which is great inside the cluster, but then outside getting that integration done is kind of a a slippery slope, I feel like, you know, because you don't want everything, at least in my experience, I haven't wanted everything that's going on DNS-wise inside the cluster to be exposed to the external DNS and then the other problem I've run into there is using an environment that has Microsoft Active Directory and the Microsoft DNS as their primary DNS. And then that's just, um, that just gets really ugly because inside of Microsoft DNS, you've got every workstation that's like ever joined the domain in there.
1: I'm sure there's never been any problems with that. No.
3: I mean, it works great for, if you're a Microsoft specific shop, you know, and everything is done within the Active Directory domain, it it works great. It's really where you're bridging over between Active Directory domain names and internet domain names that I feel like there's a a lot of unnecessary complexity in there. And that may just be a limitation of my experience because my Microsoft sysadmin days ended pretty much with NT4
1: I haven't had any Microsoft uh, admin days. I keep thinking I should learn to manage Active Directory because I know it would be a good idea instead of just, you know, having a shell script that, you know, throws a bunch of Linux users wherever, which is pretty <laughs> much what I have been doing. I'll, like, push them to an S3 bucket and then do, like, the, the user the user add with the file. Yeah, that's been working out for me fine. Maybe one of these days I'll learn Active Directory. Okay, so when is the time that you should be using Kubernetes, you think? I have
3: some. Yeah, I think the one that sticks out to me most is what I mentioned, you know, where you have your own physical hardware and you're trying to get the most you can out of that hardware investment.
2: I usually work with small teams who don't have that situation. I mean... You know, small companies usually don't own a data center or even a rack in a data center. So I usually advise that my clients to use Kubernetes in the cloud. So hosted Kubernetes, either EKS or GKE or whatever. And the situations where I would advocate to use Kubernetes are where they already have an application that works essentially as microservices, individual stateless apps. That's not to say you can't do stateful apps in Kubernetes, but it's complicated. It's it's not for beginners. So if you have a database, run that on RDS or on Google SQL, uh, cloud SQL or something, you know, put your database outside of Kubernetes, uh, which, which, which touches on a really important point. You don't have to go all in on Kubernetes. You could use Kubernetes for something while still using another approach, whether it's VMs or Heroku or whatever for, for part, other parts of your application. But I, I, yeah, I would suggest using Kubernetes when high availability, or rolling updates, something like that, something along those lines is important for your application and your application is designed to take advantage of that. So if you're building your application from scratch, you can build it that way. If you're trying to try to retrofit a legacy application, probably don't use Kubernetes unless you really like the challenge. Some
1: people do just like to live on the bleeding edge, you know, I don't know why yeah. they do. I'm living on the bleeding. edge.
2: I mean, there there can be valid reasons to, to shoehorn a legacy app into Kubernetes, but that should be because you're already using Kubernetes for other reasons. And you really want to have the same, same sort of visibility and logging and alerting that you already have everywhere else. So you know, that's a different situation, I think, than should we adopt Kubernetes? Uh, you should not adopt Kubernetes for your WordPress site. That, that's just a forfeit <laughs> for Kubernetes. But if you if you already have thousands of applications running in Kubernetes, it might make sense in your situation to, to shoehorn WordPress into Kubernetes. But that's a very different conversation
0: hey folks i'm here with jd from raygun jd I, I have to complain i mean when i started in tech like 20 years ago one of the first things they taught me was to use tail and grep to find the problem on a server and uh i i don't do that anymore um i have to say raygun kind of solves that problem for me and picks up all the stuff that really is relevant to the request or whatever that ha- came in um I'm curious, do you find that with kind of the oldsters like me a common thing? or
2: I think there's definitely better approaches to solving some of these problems now. You know, <laughs> I, I always used to think of logging. I heard this great analogy once. It was like, you know, logging tools are like coffins. Things go in there. They very rarely come out, you know, um, and you feel safe because it's there. But there's so much noise. Understanding what's mm-hmm. important and what's not takes a lot of effort. Um, Yeah. And I mean, you know, often I talk about Raygun's crash reporting product as being like a black box flight recorder. Like, just tell me when the plane blows up because I need to fix that really urgently, (laughs) you know, um, and that's been hugely valuable. You don't need to tail that.
0: That's true. You know, folks, you should just go get Raygun and then you can see when stuff breaks. What matters? You can get it at Raygun.com. They actually are doing a free trial. So go check it out. Yeah,
3: I think another place where it makes sense is similar to what you were talking about, Jonathan, with the microservices, but where you have a mix of some microservices that are externally exposed and some that are internally exposed. I like doing that on Kubernetes. Let's say you've got, you know, uh, I don't know, just some type of one of your microservices performs a role, but it's only accessed from other microservice components where well, you can have that internal to Kubernetes. It's not a, it's not externally exposed anywhere. And then you get the common DNS name. So you can give that to all of your apps. And regardless of where that app's running or how many times it's been restarted or whatever, you know, you have that consistent naming scheme so that all of your other apps know where they can go find that microservice to talk to it.
2: I suppose another you? reason to use... Another reason before I, I let Jillian talk, another reason that I would suggest using Kubernetes potentially... Is because it forces you to design your application in a certain way. And if you want your application designed that way, then designing it for Kubernetes can be uh, a useful discipline. So that, that's really less of a technical reason for Kubernetes and more of a, of a, uh, yeah, a disciplinary reason. You know, it, in other words, if you want to build a 12 factor application, put a link to that in the show notes too. The 12-factor app is usually a pretty good fit for Kubernetes. Julian, your turn. That,
1: uh, some similar reasons. So one of them is that AWS seems to really be going all in on Kubernetes. They keep adding features and things to the ETS service. Uh, one of the things in particular that they've added in the last like six months has been the ability to use the AWS Secrets Manager as the secret store. Which is really great if you have any kind of data compliance. Uh, for me, that tends to be HIPAA compliance, which is the healthcare compliance. But I know they have like other ones too, financial tech, um, and what have you. So if you're already kind of just bought into we are using some kind of secrets manager, and we're using the AWS Secrets Manager, it's it's really easy now to get it uh, going with Kubernetes. It's like it's just a you know it's just applying a configuration file. And then the other one is for these data science applications where you have these very like spiky workflows. Kubernetes is a really good fit for that because you do have the auto-scaling in the back end and then like Jonathan was saying with the the 12 factor authentications and these uh these like very large data science the you know real-time data visualization of these large-scale data sets you can design something really nice that's kind of been my focus in the last year or two using kubernetes because you can have this this very like decoupled kind of like data transformation process where you have your ui and that's being served by like one pod and that can be very you know very small because it's just the ui and then it's talking to a back end and the back end is basically just relaying requests and then it's maybe talking to like a Redis session store and is keeping, uh, you know, like not the data, but the pointers to the data within the Redis session store. And then you have like an additional, maybe an Apache Spark or a DAS cluster. And then that is again, taking care of with all the Kubernetes auto scaling and things like that. So those tend to be really, really nice fits. You can get some like really serious performance and just do things that were not possible. Like even, I want to say even a few years ago, even though Kubernetes was like around a few years ago, it wasn't nearly as you know, robust and, you know, it wasn't anywhere near as easy to find solutions and things like that for it. But now if you're if you're doing something that has a really spiky workload and, you know, some of that is going to kind of fit in a Kubernetes cluster, like I said, the Dask, the Spark, PyArrow, uh, any of these, yeah, I think Kubernetes is a really good fit for that. I'm also seeing that the AWS marketplace seems to be going all in on making Kubernetes like a really kind of like first class citizen. It didn't used to be so much. It used to be all like EC2 instances and um, ECS and Fargate and stuff like that. But they have been recently adding in, more functionality for being able to deploy applications through the AWS marketplace. They seem to be really into it because I'm trying to deploy some applications. It is the first time I've ever talked to like a real person from AWS. Like I have like a real person emailing me, being like, is it done now? What about now? Is it done now? Like, where is this? And I couldn't believe it because usually, you know, you talk to like the AWS support, it's usually bots, which just kind of makes me, you know, if I'm actually talking to a real person, it just does make me think that they are kind of taking it seriously and want to get uh, some applications out there. So they now have like you can deliver your application as a Helm chart. Yeah. The downside of that is that you have to put their your containers through their security service, and mine keep failing. Yeah. It keeps failing. <laughs> I don't know if I should be admitting this live on the air, but like it's still <laughs> I don't even know what half these things are. I'm just like, this is a
2: safe space. There? You can admit your failure.
1: I know. I know. I can I can talk about my <laughs> feelings here. Right? That's okay. But yeah, so I guess that's something else, too, that if you're getting things through the AWS marketplace, even if it's on Kubernetes, it has to go through their very, very strict uh, security protocol for that. And then you can see, then you can make sure that it is secure and doesn't have any of the really big vulnerabilities. Like, what is it, the, the log4j one or the heartbeat one a couple of years ago, stuff like that.
3: That's cool. I'll plug yeah, our... supervisor. we
1: supervisor will introduce one.
3: Yeah, I'll plug oh. our co-host, Shimon, who hasn't been here in a while. Have you used uh, Dutry? Datree? tree?
1: Yeah, I have been using yeah. that actually. I've been using that to um, yeah, it's like an additional so I do helm like lint and then use the Datree the and then also do like just like a kind of matrix template build where I do the helm template and then just do like basically like a Python read in the YAML file and then just do a bunch of asserts so that it's coming out the way that I think that it's coming out. Right on. And that's, that's what I'm doing there. Yeah, if you are interested in this, uh, this, they're calling it data microservices. I think these days there's a really good talk. It's a webinar. It's on YouTube by Databricks. I'll put it in the show notes too. It's, uh, I don't know, data microservices with PyArrow and Apache Spark, something like that by Databricks.
2: So I have a related question, and I I think Will and I might differ on this one, but I'm curious, where would you put your Kubernetes if you decide to go that route? Will's talked about putting it on excess hardware essentially in your data center, uh, and I tend to favor host kubernetes but how do you make the decision
3: yeah for me it's um yeah it's only if you have the hardware if you've already made the investment in the hardware i wouldn't buy hardware to run kubernetes i would go to i would probably go to amazon eks but if you're using google or azure you know they both have their own solutions as well but yeah i I wouldn't recommend anyone buying hardware unless you had like Mm -hmm. a really good reason
2: to be buying hardware these days. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, yeah, I would agree with that. And it also, the hardware itself may not be the most important investment. Uh, the the salaries of the people managing that hardware is also a consideration. Even if you have hardware sitting around, make the calculation and see if it's actually worth it. Or would you would your money better be sent letting the hardware rot in the corner <laughs> while you're while you're paying Amazon to do your management for you, for example. Yeah. And I don't know where the breakoff point is, but it's it's going to be different depending on what you're doing. But th- there will be a point.
1: I have trouble believing it's worth it for like a small shop to buy their own hardware. Because even I mean, if you have any kind of startup and you go to the cloud, they'll give you credits. Like they gave me 10,000. And I had like a really sketchy looking website and <laughs> like a registered business. And that was it. And they still they were like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, here, here's some cash for you. Go be free, like that kind of thing. So I mean, is it? I suppose that could be a separate conversation, but uh, do you guys think it's even worth it to invest in your own data center anymore? What are you guys seeing for that?
2: My answer to that sort of question, the the, the whole buy versus lease or rent or whatever, or borrow sort of question, if it's core to your business, you should probably buy. So in other words, uh, uh, I'll elaborate in a minute. If it's not core to your business, then my, my general rule of thumb is it needs to cost 25 to 50% of a salary before you consider doing it in-house. And, and that's just on the theory that it's, it's cheaper to outsource than to pay somebody to do it. Uh, and, and, of course, that exact number varies depending on how complicated the task is and, and whatnot. So when would it make sense to buy uh, because it's your core business, I, I don't actually know. I mean, I, I, the first thing I would think of, is like, you're doing data backups, and you need petabytes of storage, but you can even lease that these days. So I don't even know if that, <laughs> that really makes sense until it's literally cheaper to do it in house than to pay someone else. And there, there is a point where that's always going to be true. I suppose if you have very specialized hardware needs, maybe you need specific GPUs, because you're, you're crypto mining or something, or you're doing 3D rendering on specialized hardware, then then there's a there's a case to be owning your own hardware, of course. But if you're just doing general computing, uh, it would be I'm not saying there's not a, t- a time, but I, I'm having a difficult time imagining when you should buy your own hardware instead of of using a cloud provider. I, I suppose maybe data security and, and privacy might be a, an issue if you really really are paranoid about that, and some business models should be. So m- maybe that's something to consider too.
1: I have worked places where the data has to be like physically in a specific location, like within a country. Mm -hmm. That's quite common uh, here in the Middle East. I think they're kind of starting to get rid of that because everybody wants to jump on the cloud. But before the cloud was so common, it was it was like quite common to see that like, no, we want the data to physically stay in the country.
2: In most cases, like you know, that's an issue right now—the GDPR and uh, Google Analytics and stuff like that. But generally, I mean, if, if that's your concern, you can you can just use the AWS region in your country or your continent or, or your jurisdiction. In most cases, uh, in some cases you can't. If you're in China, there's special restrictions. Of course, you need to keep your data probably in China just because of the Great Firewall. So you yeah, know there, there are geographical considerations too. That doesn't mean you need to own your hardware necessarily. You might just be able to use, but you might be restricted in which cloud providers you can use.
3: Yeah, I would agree with you. I think there might be some really specialized use cases, and and even those, I don't think are I don't think there's as many of them as what as what you might suspect, because a lot of your data compliance and privacy. Concerns can be addressed using a cloud provider by encrypting your data at transit and at rest, and only you have those keys. And another benefit to using cloud versus buying hardware, and I don't see a lot of people going down this path, but working with your finance team to determine what part of your cloud cost are cost of goods sold, and what part are um, OpEx expenses one of the big reasons for buying your own physical hardware in the past has been you make that purchase and then you depreciate it out over time to leverage the tax benefits of that. And a lot of people jump to the conclusion that, well, if we go to a cloud, we lose that ability. But that's not necessarily true because there's certain part of your cloud infrastructure that qualifies as cost of goods sold that's actually required in order for you to do your business. And so you get to uh, treat that differently for tax purposes than other stuff that's not required for delivering the product to your customers.
1: Yeah, I'm just getting into a lot of this tax stuff. I feel like I could have saved a lot of money the last few years if I'd been paying more attention to what my accountant was telling me. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, lesson learned everybody hire an account don't just hire the accountant by the way you have to hire them and then you also have to listen to what they're telling you and then you got to implement it so
2: i wonder if it's true with my doctor too should i actually follow their advice when they say to do more exercise i don't know or does just going to the doctor help me lose weight I, I think it's a
3: two-part thing you have to go to the doctor and carry out the follow-up actions
2: so, unfortunately you're probably right yeah so if anybody's interested by the way i i had uh I had Andy Suderman from Fairwinds on my podcast uh, back in December. and We talked about choosing a cloud provider for Kubernetes. So I'll put a link to that also in the show notes. If you have decided you want Kubernetes and you're not sure if you should do Google, Amazon, or Azure, then that episode could be helpful. The TLDR is if you don't have any... Kubernetes experience, and you aren't already using AWS, Google is probably the easiest for you to use. Although Amazon is catching up quickly, and if you're already using Amazon for other things, then that's probably where you should go. So that was that was his conclusion. And, and if you're already a Microsoft shop, then Azure is where you should go. So yeah. um, that was kind of the the quick version of what he said. But if you're interested in the full episode, I'll follow the link in the in the description.
3: Did y'all talk about like the ability to hire additional staff? based on that provider cuz it seems like AWS has a lot more potential candidates than Google or Azure but that could just be my perception.
2: Yeah, we didn't we didn't uh talk about that specific aspect and I think you're probably right. However, I think that anybody with AWS experience can pick up the others pretty quickly. Yeah, um, true. So Of course, the the big difference would be if you're doing Azure with Active Directory integration or something, that's something that the others probably won't have. So you'll need to learn that unless you're already a Windows admin and already understand that aspect.
3: Yeah. And if that's not the case, you can just sit down and think about what life choices have led you to this position. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Exactly.
3: Just go sit in the corner and think about what you've done.
1: (laughs) with Terry around the world.
2: You know, when my mother told me to do that, I don't think I ever thought about what I did.
3: Did you? I don't think sitting (laughs) in a corner was ever an option for me. I think (laughs) the things I did tend to escalate right past that being an option. (laughs) all right.
1: They went straight to getting thrown through a wall.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say quickly, like in terms of hiring people, I do think it's a lot easier if you do a cloud provider versus an in-house data center. Uh, Like, I know, or I don't know if that's just kind of my own bias speaking, because I won't work with people with their own in-house data centers anymore, because it's just it's such a pain. You know, if I'm working with somebody on AWS, they're like, here's an IAM credential, you know, and then I just go log in and I can go do stuff. But every time there's an in-house data center, you know, you got to get VPN credentials and get their IT involved and whoever has to approve that. And it's like it's a whole thing. And it's such a pain.
3: Yeah, I think that's one of the areas where you still see a lot of team-based silos. And that was, you know, that was the pain and frustration that led to the DevOps movement. And that was really just having cloud providers in general. I know early on in the cloud days, a couple of the places I worked, that was the driving factor for them going to the cloud. And it wasn't a graceful way. It was, a, uh, hey, there's this AWS thing. And if I just enter my credit card number, we get everything we want without having to ask IT. And that was their cloud migration strategy until IT was like, wait a minute, what is all this stuff? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So I used to work with an IT and I was in like this little department and the sole job was pretty much to have that conversation. Like here's the data scientists and the bioinformaticians and I would have to go talk to them about what they wanted. And then I'd have to go talk to IT and then I'd go back to the data scientists and be like, all right, everything you just said, you're not allowed to say that. Here's what you're going to say instead. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, like get get like around the rules. And that that was my whole job for like a couple of years. It was great.
3: I think that's the well, hidden talent of DevOps. Uh, it's not technical. It's Spin Doctor.
1: Yeah, it really is. Spin Doctor. Yeah, <laughs> <Doctor.
3: laughs> Spin Doctor. <ops. laughs>
1: Put that one on the chart from last week
3: smack dab in the middle <laughs> yeah right i'm gonna go buy the domain spinops.com
2: <laughs> you better do it before this episode goes live right no, and i'm gonna make no, the yeah. nft too <laughs> oh it's already sold there's a oh it, but it's for sale it's owned but it's for sale 24,888 dollars Oof. yeah it's about $10 over your budget, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, have we solved Kubernetes?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think so. Use it, we'll, except for when you don't want to use it.
3: Yeah, we'll probably get a uh, Kelsey Hightower tweet storm out of this episode.
2: <laughs> awesome. It'd be better if we could get them to come on here and just talk to us about it. Yeah. Kelsey, cool. we want to talk to you. Join us. That'd be cool. So we promise we not to doing, well. just
1: get on Get on Twitter during the show. Do like live angry tweeting. Come talk to me. <laughs> 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 We're just sitting here fighting with each other.
3: Cool. Should we do some pics?
1: All right. Cool. Yep.
0: Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
3: All right, you're both stalling, so I'm going to jump in. Well. All right, cool. <laughs> I have two related picks. Last week, I picked up the book. I was actually in a physical bookstore first time in I don't know how long. Oh, yeah. And I left your house? Yeah, and I bought the book, The YouTube Formula. It was the only copy in the bookstore. It's from a guy named Daryl Eves. And I read the thing, it's three or 400 pages, and I read the thing in just a couple of days because it was so engaging. And uh, so if you're thinking about doing a YouTube channel or are doing a YouTube channel, I can't recommend that book enough. And uh, so based on that, I'm actually changing the way that I'm doing my YouTube channel, DevOps for Developers. So my first book pick is the YouTube Formula book. Second pick is by the time this episode goes live on the podcast, my first video using this new strategy should be live on the DevOps for developers YouTube channel. So check that out and then let me know what you think, because I think if I do this right, the videos out there are going to be a lot more engaging and interesting. To uh, people who are similar listeners to the podcast here, so if
2: that if I nailed it,
3: let me know. If not, let me know that too. Those are my picks.
2: Well, I have a pick. So I'm I'm visiting my mother now for the first time in several years. So I'm in the U.S. and and. I don't know, maybe it's just because I grew up in the US, and now I live in Europe, that I, I'm partial to certain American brands on certain things, especially clothing related, because it's hard to find sizes that I like or styles that I like when I'm in Europe. So I ordered several pairs of shoes that my mother uh, has been holding on to me on onto for me. And I'm going to pick Allen Edmonds shoes, because they are super comfortable. They're super attractive. But they're also kind of expensive. So, but th- these have been my go-to shoes. We talked about we talked about digital nomading uh, a few episodes ago, and I had a pair of Allen Edmonds shoes that I wore around the world, and they were great for that because they're super comfortable, very versatile. Um, I had the the uh, McAllister Wingtip shoes. It looks like current retail price is. A, $400, depending on exactly which model you get. But you can replace the soles when they wear out. They're nice for casual work, but nice enough you could wear them to a semi formal event like a wedding or something like that. So that's my pick for this week is Alan Edmonds shoes. They have all sorts of shoes. The McAllister in particular are my favorite model. I was also going to repick the book from last week, but I haven't finished it. So I'm going to hold off on that until I finished <laughs> it. It turns out reading on a plane with a one year old in your lap isn't quite as easy as I had expected. So I'll probably repick that. It, so far, it's great, but I'll, I'll wait till I finished it to give a proper pick on that one. Right on.
1: Cool. All right. Well, I put the link to the YouTube video that I mentioned earlier from Databricks, and I have the actual title here. It is Data Microservices and Apache Spark using Apache Arrow Flight. So it's cool if you're into building data microservices that ingest and you know extract and transform data. Go give it a listen. It is—it's uh, very interesting, and they have like a whole series like that. That's very interesting. And then the other one for a more fun pick, I'm gonna pick a video game. It's called Tales of Arise, and it is an RPG. I guess there's like a whole Tales of series. It was very fun. It's very nice for like uh, casual gaming, which tends to be me because it took me two years to beat the last Final Fantasy game. I don't have enough attention span to be playing video games for that long. So I tend to like something that I can beat maybe over the course of like a couple weeks or preferably, you know, like a long weekend when I'm kind of trapped in the house. But uh, it was nice. The story mode is actually story mode. Some video games, they say they have a story mode and then like it's too hard for me. And then, you know, my 10 year old, or actually she's 11 now, she's, comes and beats it for me. And then I, you know, just go to my room and, like, cry for a little while. uh, (laughs) Well, yeah, that was, it was a fun video game. I think there's a couple more in the series if you ever want to try them out. Right on. Those are my picks for the week.
3: Cool. Well, I believe
0: this is where we end the episode.
1: It is. All righty.
0: Cool. All right. Thanks, everyone. Until next time.
1: Until next time.
0: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit. C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y to learn more.